Some of you in uh, high school or college may have read the famous classic book, A Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. If you did, you remember that part of the plot of that book is that humanity develops a, a supercomputer and sets it about the task of answering the, the, the question, what is the ultimate meaning of life? Well, the computer uh, gets a hold of the question and begins to run calculations and runs calculations and purrs and horrors and runs calculations over and over and over again for seven and a half million years until finally the supercomputer spits out an answer and says that the meaning of life is 42. The leaders of humanity are gathered around to hear the answer and the computer spits it out. 42 is the meaning of life. There's a long silence until finally somebody shouts at the supercomputer, that's it? After seven and a half million years of thinking about this, you come up with the answer 42? And the computer replies, yes, I checked and double-checked the numbers, and that's the way it is, 42. Part of what the author of A Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy is doing there is, is just making fun of the whole idea of there being any meaning of life in the first place, right? If a supercomputer can't get at it after seven and a half million years of doing calculations, then what are you and I going to be able to come up with that's any better than just 42 in the 70 or 80 years that the Lord normally gives to human beings. People have given all kinds of answers to the question, what is the meaning of life? You know, there's the old saw, let's just all eat and drink and be merry for tomorrow we die. That's a, that's a rather cynical look at it. Others have said that the meaning of life is love or friendship or family or making sure that the next generation is able to, is able to, to live better than you lived. Other people have said that what you should do in the 70 or 80 years that, that life gives to you is, is strive to make some sort of a dent in the universe. Others have said that the meaning of life is to change the world in some way, to do a little bit of good, to do something. But you know, if you really start to think about it, I think, for all those answers that are given, 42 is probably as good an answer as any of them as to what the meaning of life is, at least until you break outside the bounds and the bonds of a purely godless understanding of the world. What I want to talk with you about today is exactly that kind of a question. What is the meaning of life? And how can we even say that there is any meaning of life if the reality of the situation is just that you're born on one day, you live a few more days in between, and then at the end of it, you die, and everything is swept away like sandcastles on the shore? And even if you can do a few good things in life, even if you can make a dent in the universe, what does it ultimately mean 100 years from now, 200 years from now, a thousand years from now. Who's going to remember you or what you've done? What is the meaning of life and why does it matter? We're beginning a study today that's going to run for the next few weeks uh, uh, and we're going to be studying the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes. So take a Bible and turn into the Old Testament. I know that that, that may sound uh, random and obscure and uh, uh, what I want to try to convince you of over the next few weeks is that it's not random and obscure at all. The author of Ecclesiastes is in fact wrestling with and, and asking and giving answers to some of the most profound questions of human life and existence. And so we're going to go along with him 
through these 12 chapters and see how he answers these questions. So take a Bible, turn to the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, if you're here with us this morning and you're not super familiar with, with the Bible, uh, what we do here at Third Avenue is open up the Bible to uh, a particular place each week, and I stand up here and uh, read and explain and talk about the application of that particular text and its relevance to our lives. Uh, the Bible is divided up into really two major parts. There's the Old Testament and then there's the New Testament, and the two are sort of uh, uh, divided uh, according to whether Jesus has arrived or not on the scene of the story. So in the Old Testament, Jesus has not yet arrived. In the New Testament, it's when he arrives. Well, so today and for the next few weeks, we're going to be looking back to a document that was written uh, some hundreds of years before uh, Jesus was actually born. And yet it's a document that, that says true and right and good things about who God is and who we are. And in the end, I think, even points us to Jesus as the answer to the question, what is the true meaning of life? So if you want to use a, uh, uh, one of these red pew Bibles in front of you, it, it looks just like this one. You can find them either in the pew rack in front of you, maybe under your seat, something like that. The book of Ecclesiastes begins on page 553. So you'll be able to find that book there. This book, Ecclesiastes, is one of a handful of books in the Old Testament along with Job and Psalms and Proverbs and the Song of Solomon, that make up a category of biblical literature that we refer to as wisdom literature. Wisdom literature. There are several different genres of Scripture uh, in the Old Testament. In particular, you've got the law, you've got the histories, you've got the major prophets, the minor prophets. But there's one category of, of book, and there are five different books in it, that we call wisdom literature. Now, it's always a little bit hard to define exactly what constitutes wisdom literature. And the reason is because nobody wants to say that all the wisdom in the Bible is, is confined to these five books, right? Wisdom is sort of all over the Bible. And so it's a little bit difficult in some way to say, well, this book is about wisdom and this book is, is about something else. But we try to do it anyway. One of the ways that we do is, is to recognize that, that these books, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Song of Solomon, and then uh, Ecclesiastes, which is what we're studying, they have something in common. They share a kind of unique purpose together. They're all kind of trying to do the same thing that is, that is different from other books of the Bible. And what they're all trying to do that's sort of unique is just at a very broad level, they reflect on the world that God has made. They reflect on the rhythms and patterns that kind of make up that world and make up the, the rhythms and patterns of, of life. And then they start to reflect on humanity's place in that world and in that life. So you might say that as you come to these books of wisdom, their purpose is to teach us the art of living well in God's creation. And as we're going to see as we make our way through the book of Ecclesiastes, that's exactly what this book is trying to do, though it does so in a bit of a unique and kind of in-through-the-back-door sort of way. I think you'll understand that a little bit better as we get to the message of the book. Before we do that, though, let's just, as we do uh, every time we start a new series and a new, a new book of the Bible, let's just start with the basics and talk about some of the things that, uh, uh, that sort of uh, uh, describe the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes, you can kind of flip through it and see what's going on, maybe look at the, uh, maybe look at the subheadings inside the book and see what's going on. It's made up of 12 chapters, and it claims in verse 1-1, chapter 1, verse 1, the very first thing it says, Claims to have been written by someone called the preacher, or, or maybe the teacher, depending on how you translate the, the, the Hebrew word that lays underneath that. Traditionally, through most of Jewish and even Christian history, people have assumed that the book was written by King Solomon, mostly because that very first verse, 1-1, says that this preacher or teacher was the son of David and king in Israel. 
And that makes sense if you, if you apply that to Solomon, but also because of some of the ways that this author, this preacher or teacher describes his life, particularly in chapter 2, when he says he, he had great wisdom and he had great wealth, and all of those things just kind of sound to us like Solomon. Well, all things considered, we don't know exactly when the book was written. And all things considered, Solomon is probably as good a guess as any, which would put this somewhere like 800 years before the birth of Christ. But if it was Solomon who wrote the book, then there are some things about it that just get a little bit strange, right? So, for example, if you look at chapter 2, verse 9, the author of the book says there, so he, he does all this stuff, right? And then he says, so I became great and I surpassed all who were before me, all who, that is, who ruled before me, all those who were king before me in Jerusalem. I surpassed them all. Well, if this is, if this is Solomon, then the all who preceded him as king in Jerusalem would be, well, one guy, David, that's it. I mean, David was the only king that ruled before Solomon in Jerusalem, and so to, to boast like this, like this guy does in chapter 2, verse 9, that you surpassed all who came before you, and that was one guy, is a little bit of a weird flex. So, so it's also possible that the guy who wrote Ecclesiastes is not, in fact, Solomon. Maybe it was written by another king of Israel sometime later. I mean, if you look at 1-1, uh, those words could apply to any king in Jerusalem, actually, not just Solomon. The words of the preacher, the son of David, that phrase, the son of David, was applied to all the kings of, uh, of Israel and even all those who were, who were descendants of, of David. So Joseph in the New Testament, for instance, is called the son of David. And Jesus himself is called the son of David. It doesn't have to be Solomon. So then you've got this title here, Ecclesiastes. What, is, what does that mean? I mean, I mean, have you ever just looked at that word? Because it is a very strange-looking word, right? If you're, if you're clued into Greek a little bit, you might be able to see that it has something to do with ekklesia, which is the, the Greek word for church or for assembly. And so you're kind of wondering, well, what does... What does church have to do with this? What do assemblies have to do with this? For most of us, we're not even, you know, even, even that clued into the Greek. And so we look at this word, Ecclesiastes, and we think that it's probably parallel to the word Proverbs, right? So in Proverbs, uh, you've got this, this book that is full of Proverbs, and here in this book, you've got this book that is full of Ecclesiastes. But then you stop and think about it, and you're like, well... Now, I know what a proverb is, but what in the world is an Ecclesiastes? Well, let me set your mind at ease. There is no such thing as an Ecclesiastes, and this is not a book that is full of multiple Ecclesiastes. What it means, actually, is that this, this, this word, Ecclesiastes, is just a Latin, it's not even Greek, really, it's, it's a Latin translation of the Hebrew word that's used there for preacher in 1.1. The words of the preacher. There's a Hebrew word that, that lies underneath that. And this book is actually called in, in Hebrew that, that very word. The Hebrew word is kohelet, and that's what they called this, uh, this work. It's just called the preacher in Hebrew. Well, when, when the Bible began to be translated into Latin, they just took that Hebrew word kohelet, they translated it into, into Latin, and that word was not ecclesiastes in the plural, but ecclesiastes, the teacher or the preacher. So if it helps you, you can take a pen and just sort of strike that out and say, you know, the translation of this into the English would be the teacher. That's what this book is actually called. Ecclesiastes is a book of wisdom, like we said, and like other books of wisdom, it's meant to help us learn the art of living well in God's creation. But Ecclesiastes is very different 
from its uh, sort of fellow traveler wisdom book, Proverbs, where Proverbs is largely a grab bag of various aphorisms about dozens and dozens of things, and the, uh, the arrangement of the book is somewhat random. Ecclesiastes is not like that at all. And if you want to understand the book, you can't just drop into it and pick out one verse and use it as a kind of, uh, uh, use it as a kind of uh, fortune cookie to tell you what to do with your life today. It's not going to work like that. And in fact, if you try that, there are a few verses in the book that will get you into serious trouble if you don't put them in their context. Now, Ecclesiastes is is a lot more like most of the other books in the Bible in that it pursues a single line of argument from start to finish, from chapter 1 all the way through chapter 12. This author is making an argument. He's making a case about something. He wants you as the reader to start in chapter 1, go through chapter 12, and understand his, his argument from start to finish. Now, that's not to say that when you read the book of Ecclesiastes, if you have a sort of scientific, logical, step-by-step mind, like, like I kind of do, that is not to say that this book is going to seem logical and step-by-step to you. It, it's just not. It is not an instruction booklet. It's not a logical step-by-step kind of argument. It, it's better understood as a kind of work of art. In fact, it makes its points not just by stating them in a logical sort of uh, uh, sort of uh, syllogistic fashion, A and B and therefore C. It doesn't really do that. It makes its points by showing them to you, by making you and helping you feel its points even as you're reading the book. So let me just give you an example. One of the points that the book of Proverbs is going to make is that life itself is often circular and repetitive. It's just going to make that point over and over, just like the sun rises and the sun sets and the wind blows and then it blows again. Just like, uh, you know, the streams flow into the ocean, and the ocean is never filled, and the water evaporates and goes back to the stream, and then, it, and then it goes. Just like all of those things are happening, life itself can be kind of circular and repetitive. And in fact, one of the, uh, the other points that it's going to make is that the search for ultimate answers to some of life's hardest questions often winds you up in a dead end. So instead of just saying that, instead of just telling you life is repetitive and circular, And sometimes you wind up in dead ends as you're pursuing these questions, which the author could have done. He actually uses his book to take you in circles, and he'll swing back around from one topic to another like this in order that you're actually feeling the repetitiveness and circularity of life. There are other times when he'll pursue a question, and he'll pursue it for a little while, and then he'll just kind of come to an answer and sort of give up on it. And you're like, well, that's a dead end. Why didn't you finish the argument? Well, it's partly because he wants you to feel the weight of the fact that sometimes in life there are questions that don't have good answers. You just run into a dead end, and you have to stop talking. So the very structure of the book, the very way that it's, that it's written And therefore, the experience of reading it is making its own point. So as you read Ecclesiastes, you're not just understanding the point of the book, you're actually feeling its point. So just just by the way, that's a good good, uh, reason for why you should sometime over the next six weeks or so find some time to sit down, it'll take you about an hour, and read the book of Ecclesiastes from start to finish. Uh, uh, you know, it won't kill you to read 12 chapters of the Bible all at once. And what it will do actually is help you feel the weight and the circularity and the movement of the book, and it'll help you feel its point as well as understand it. For those of you who who have a kind of logical mind like mine, sort of scientific, you like things in order and you like like syllogisms and you like aphorisms and you like logic, uh, the book is going to be a little bit frustrating for you. But I hope that, that, like it has been for me, that will actually be a good thing for you because it, it might break your stranglehold on the expectation that everything in life ought to be a syllogism because it's simply not, and that's part of what Ecclesiastes wants to teach you. So what is its point? 
I mean, if the book is written and structured and, and built so that you might not just understand its point but feel its point, what exactly is the point? Well, that's a, that's a super interesting question because it's one that people have been talking and arguing about literally for millennia now. I mean, we Christians have been arguing about it for 2,000 years, and the Jews argued about it for at least hundreds and maybe more than 1,000 years themselves. I mean, on the one hand, the, the book at times, as, you, as we read through chapter 1 and 2, you're going to see this uh, uh, in, in bright colors. The, the book just seems sometimes hopelessly pessimistic. I mean, the very first thing that the author says is, vanity of vanities, everything is vanity. And some of your Bibles will even translate that wrongly, I think, and I'll explain that later. Meaningless, meaningless, everything is, is meaningless. And that hopelessness and, and vanity just seems to, to shoot through the book from start to finish. On the other hand, though, there are also times where the author kind of comes up out of this, you know, seeming depression that, that he's in, and he sees the good in life. He even sees the necessity and the good of enjoying life. And at the end of the book, he gives a ringing ap- a- affirmation of the goodness of life as it's lived under the sovereignty of God. But still, as you read through the book, he just seems to go from, you know, vanity to enjoyment, vanity to enjoyment, meaninglessness to meaningful. And and those two messages seem to clash. I mean, is life meaningless or is life, in fact, deeply meaningful? He seems to affirm both of those things at the same time. In fact, people have had such a hard time discerning the author's message in this book and trying to figure out how how to deal with all of those tensions that, that one author even suggested that what you've got here is originally just a deeply pessimistic book. That somebody came along and wrote this book and, and just, just laid it out and all of its pessimism. Life is awful and horrible and repetitive and there's, there's no point in it and we should all just, you know, eat, drink and be merry for tomorrow we die. That was the original, this guy said. But then somebody came along and in the margins argued with him. You're like, no, you know, if you live life in obedience to God, it's not that bad. And no, we should eat, drink, and be merry because God has given us these gifts. And, and so he thought that probably what happened is that then some scribe came along and stuck the original and the little arguing notes together into one thing and thus the confusion. I don't think that's what happened at all. And I think that what we're going to see as we, as we make our way through the book is that it, it's not actually pessimistic at all. In fact, the author's goal through the whole book is to help us live well and joyfully. Remember, that's the point of wisdom literature. It's the art of living well in God's world, living joyfully in God's creation. And I think that's what the author's doing. He's trying to help us live well and joyfully and meaningfully in God's word, world. And the way he does that is precisely by helping us come to terms with the fact that we are created in finite beings. He wants to help us live joyful, meaningful lives in God's world precisely by helping us come to terms with the fact that we're created in finite beings, that this life is not eternal and that it can't and is not even designed by God to give us ultimate meaning or satisfaction. But, but what you see at the end of the book as you make your way through is that the great irony of the fact that this life is not eternal and it's not designed to give ultimate satisfaction and meaning, once you realize and grasp that fact, once you sort of let it get down into your bones, oh, that's not what this life was designed to do, that's not what the things of this world, it's not what the goals of this world were ever designed to do, once you understand what life really is and what it's not, well, all of that frees you up in this ironic and wonderful way to to live and enjoy and delight in life as God intended it. That's the message of the book. That's the message of Ecclesiastes. 
The author wants us to help, wants to help us live well and joyfully and meaningfully in God's world precisely by understanding that we are finite and created beings, and this life was never designed to give us ultimate satisfaction and meaning. But once you understand that, it actually helps you to live joyfully and truthfully and delighting and delightfully as God intended life to be lived. So we're going to spend the next six weeks working through this book, all 12 chapters of it, and trying to take that message to heart and work it out in our lives. But, but we're going to begin today with the first two chapters of the book. And what you've got here in these first two chapters is the story of a king who has tried it all and throws up his hands in frustration. So look with me at Ecclesiastes chapter 1. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises again. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. There's no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I've seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what's lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who are over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. I said in my heart, come now, I will rest you with pleasure. I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also is vanity. I said of laughter, it's mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I, I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I, I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward from all my toil. And then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. So I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what's already been done. And then I saw that there's more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there's more gain in light than in darkness. 
The wise person has eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And, and yet I perceived that the same event happens to all of them. And then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies, just like the fool. So I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me. For all is vanity and a striving after wind. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me, and who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all, for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave up my heart to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun, because sometimes a person who is toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he's given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. It's a fascinating little story, isn't it? I mean, you can see what's going on. This teacher is a fabulously wealthy king who decides uh, that he is going to figure out what the true meaning of life is. And then he launches out on a lifelong journey to find it. He, he tries everything ultimately. He tries the pursuit of wisdom and education and learning. He tries the pursuit of pleasure. He tries possessions and food and drink and sex and productivity. And finally, at the end of it all, he comes to the conclusion that all of this stuff is just, is just vanity. He says in the last verse, and we'll say over and over again, it's just a striving after the wind. It runs like a refrain through these couple of chapters. It's vanity. It's a striving after the wind. But I think what you've got to understand about this book is that this king's writing is not just a cry of despair into the darkness. He's going to make a case about life, a case about how to live well in God's world, and this recounting of his striving to find meaning in life through the things of this life is kind of the first step in the lesson that the author wants to, to teach us as readers. What he wants to do is in these first couple of chapters, grab you by the shirt and tell you in a fairly shocking way what you and I try so hard to ignore and look away from. And that is the fact that this life will never, never be able to give us ultimate meaning, ultimate satisfaction, or ultimate significance because for every single one of us, this life ends in death. This life is just incapable of giving you what you're looking for because for every single one of us, it ends in death. I think that's the main idea of these two chapters. This life will never be able to give you ultimate significance or satisfaction because one day soon, you're going to die. You're going to die. It might seem awful, but, but stick with me because I think ironically when you grasp that point that this life can't give you meaning because one day you're going to die, once you grasp that point, that's exactly what allows you then to live this life as God intended you to live it. In other words, not trying to mine life, not trying to squeeze life and exploit life and 
torture life for it to give something that it can never give to you, but simply recognizing life for what God intended it to be in the first place. It's a gift from God. The purpose of it is to enjoy it for its own sake, savor it and delight in it as a good gift from God. You can't do that if you think life is to be mined and squeezed for some ultimate significance for you. You'll never find that in this life. And once you understand that, you can enjoy it for its own sake as the gift from God that it is. I want to think about these chapters in in two main points. First of all, the shortness and thinness of life. The shortness and thinness of life. And then number two, our hopeless attempts to escape it, that shortness and thinness. Number one, point number one, the shortness and thinness of life. And number two, then, our hopeless attempts to escape that. So point number one, the shortness and, and thinness of life. It was Thomas Hobbes who who famously said of human life in his book, Leviathan, that it is solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. It's been a common sentiment throughout human history. American poet Kim Elizabeth said this about life, we will all someday experience death, and then we will become as obsolete as a dead leaf falling from a tree, crushed by passersby to ashes underlying the earth. Someone else said, we come and we cry, and that is life. And then we cry and we go, and that is death. The German playwright Wolfgang Borchert said, A man dies, only a few circles in the water prove that he was ever there in the first place. And even then, those circles quickly disappear, and when they're gone, he's forgotten without a trace, as if he'd never even existed. And that's all. And then most awful of all, another American author and playwright said this about life and death. Life is hard, and then you die, and then they throw dirt in your face, and then the worms eat you. Be grateful that it happens in that order. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, you laugh, but that's, it's awful. I mean, all of those quotes that I just gave you, they're, they're just Horrible. They're not encouraging. They're, they're not like the, you know, the life verses that you put on a poster in front of a sunset. This is, just, this is not what you want to think about when you've got a, a, a bad day, that the end of all of this is that the worms are going to eat you right after they throw dirt on your face. But I think that as awful as those quotes are, it's hard to deny that there's a hard-headed truth to what those people are seeing and saying about life. And the fact is the author of Ecclesiastes sees it too. Look at verse 1, what he says there. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? And of course, the expected answer there is nothing. He doesn't ultimately gain anything. Look at verse 1 there. The word vanity there is is notoriously difficult. And depending on what Bible you've got, it'll be translated in in lots of different ways. I, I think there are some Bible translations, though, that have led us astray a bit by translating that word vanity, the the Hebrew word that lies under it, as meaninglessness. As if the author of Ecclesiastes is just a kind of freshman philosophy major who's read one book by Nietzsche and comes back saying, you know, the life is absolutely hopeless and full of despair and there's nothing, nothing to it. That's, that's not what he means to say. He isn't saying that life is meaningless. I mean, you can read the rest of the book and you can see that, that, that it's obvious that that's not what he's saying. Life, life has meaning. Wisdom is better than folly and light is better than darkness. We read that verse. Some things are better than than others. Some circumstances are better than others. It's not all just absolute hopelessness and despair and meaninglessness. In fact, the word doesn't mean meaninglessness at all. 
That word vanity is actually the word in, in Hebrew for a, a vapor or a mist or a, a breath or a wisp of smoke. Here one moment and, and gone the next without making any, any real impact on, on the universe. And so what the author is really saying is not necessarily that everything is meaningless, but he's just saying life is the merest of breaths. The merest of breaths. Everything, he says, is but a breath. It's not just Ecclesiastes that says that about you and me in our short years. The Bible says all the time that we are like a mist that vanishes before the dawn. Psalm 39, verses 5 and 6 say this, Behold, you have made my days a few hand breaths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you, O God. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and doesn't even know who will gather it. Psalm 78 says that our days vanish like a mist. James says that our life is, quote, a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. I think it's worth stopping and just spending a minute to just consider that, to really sort of look it in the face and recognize and acknowledge that our lives as human beings are just pitifully short. They're here one minute and gone the next. I think the author gets at this idea again in verse 4, where he says that one generation goes and another comes. One generation goes and another comes. And the only thing that's fixed and stays in place is that the earth itself is the land upon which all those generations walk. But one generation follows another. I mean, I mean, some of you have gotten old enough to have experienced this. I mean, as I've gotten older, it, it, I'm amazed, actually, to see how fast it happened that my generation is already becoming the old generation. I mean, it happened in a, in a heartbeat, in a flash. I mean, it was just yesterday, I swear, that I was a teenager looking at my parents and thinking that they were old and unsophisticated and uneducated and, and foolish. And now I am told every single day by my own kids how old and foolish and out of touch and unsophisticated I am. And every generation that comes up, I remember it when I was 16, 17, 20, 25 years old. I remember, I, I thought that, you know, we were the first generation that had figured out that our parents were the stupid generation, you know. We're the first generation to have it figured out. I'm sure my kids think they're the first generation to figure out that their parents are dumb and never had it figured out. But it's always been that way. It's also always been the fact that the parents look down on the kids' generation and say, no, you're the foolish ones and you're going to grow up eventually, right? Generation after generation after generation. Several hundred years before Jesus, Socrates, the, the philosopher Socrates, was talking about the generation under him, and he said, the children now love luxury. They have bad manners, contempt for authority, and they show disrespect to their elders. I mean, that's Socrates. That's the best he had when he was thinking about the next generation. You know, if that's all he's got, then, you know, me and Socrates are like that, because I say the same thing about my kids all the time. It's always been that way. It will always be that way. One generation rises up with all the energy and hope of youth. They think they're going to change the world, and then before you know it, that generation is being displaced by another that thinks they're going to change the world. You remember when everybody was talking about those, those young millennials that were, you know, either going to save the world or ruin it, depending on which way you were thinking about it? Those millennials. You know how old the millennials are now? Some of the millennials are 36 years old. I bet you didn't realize that. You, when you think millennial, you're probably thinking like 21-year-olds, right, in college. They're not in college anymore. They've been out of college for 14 years, some of them. Somebody once said that inside every old person is a young person wondering what in the world just happened. 
I think that's true. And I, and I think that Ecclesiastes helps us to look squarely in the face at the reality that our life is short. It's not just short, though. It's also fleeting. It's hard to pin down. It's hard to, it's hard to grab, impossible to grab. I mean, you might as well try to grab the smoke from a blown-out candle and stick a piece of it in your pocket. I mean, the, the smoke is there, right? It's a real thing. But if you, if you try to grab it and preserve it, if you try to put it into a bottle or, or put it into your wallet, you find that you're grabbing it nothing. See, author's point in verse 3. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? At the end of it all, what do you have that you can nail down? What, if, what at the end can you look at and say, that's what I gained? That word gain there is actually, a, it's an economic word, in fact. And what it means is surplus or, or sort of what's left over. When all is said and done, when the business deal is finished, when, when all is, is finished, all the transactions are made, what is left over at the end? That is your gain or your profit. And the author is asking, at the end of life, when all the transactions are done, what is your gain at the end? What have you really nailed down and, and grasped? And his answer is nothing. Nothing. We work and we strive and we toil, and in the end, our bodies are dropped in the ground. The old aphorism has it, you can't take it with you. We try so hard to, to make death, the end of life, a, a beautiful thing, something not to be feared. You put a beautiful casket at the front of a church building, you put beautiful flowers around the, around the casket, beautiful words are said, beautiful words are, are sung. But if you've ever stayed around, after the graveside service, when all the beauty is done to watch the gravediggers actually put the casket and the body into the ground, you know it's not a beautiful thing at all. And I've done it once or twice, and it's not a pretty picture. And they have to come in, and the casket, of course, is, is heavy, and it's held up by straps, and, and, and it's, just this kind of, it's just this kind of awful dance where four men are holding onto straps and letting them go at various times, and the casket is is shaking and moving and, and settling down until finally the very last thing that happens is that it plops down into the ground, usually a, a muddy hole, and they pull the muddy straps out, roll them up, and go home. If you ever see that happen, I promise you it will drive into your being and into your consciousness the finality of death. And the fact that when all is said and done, if your hope and your significance was in this life, then you have gained nothing. The author also wants us to know that, that life is repetitive. It's repetitive. It's just, it's just sort of the same things over and over and over again. It's the point of verses 5 to 11 that we read earlier. The sun rises and then it sets. And then you can see there in verse 5, it, it hastens to the place where it rises. That, the word hastens there is actually a little more interesting than that. It's pants. In other words, the sun is, is tired. It's sprinting from the place where it's set, you know, sort of underneath the world in order to pant it at the beginning to do the same thing again and then again and then again. The sun moves from east to west. The wind blows from the north to the south, but then it comes back around to the north again to start the whole thing over. Streams and rivers flow and flow and flow into the ocean without stop, and yet the ocean is never filled. It's just there. Our eyes take in sights and our ears take in sounds, but they're never full. They're never satisfied. 
They've never had enough, so round and round and round it all goes one day after another, one year after another, one century, one age after another, one life after another, one generation after another lives and dies and is forgotten until the next one comes on the scene to live and die and be forgotten after this. I mean, look at verse 11. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of the later things yet to be among those who come after them. You see what that's, you see what that's saying? Not only will you be forgotten, but so will your children. And so will their children, and their children, and their children. Now, let's pause here again before we go on, because... Because I think what happens at this point, of course, is that when we're confronted with the starkness of what this author is saying about life and its brevity and its shortness and its, 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 its vanity, what we start to do as human beings is look for a way out of this relentless sadness. And the way we normally do it is just to, to look away. We don't want to think about death. We don't want to think about the shortness of life. We don't want to think about the fact that a mere hundred years or so from now, most of us aren't going to be remembered even by our closest relatives. You realize that, right? It's, it's 2019 now. You realize that by 2119, even your closest relatives probably won't even know your name. And how many of you, if pressed, could actually give the first and last name of all eight of your great-grandparents? Not many, I would guess. And so we just don't want to look at it. We just don't want to face up to the fact that life is short, and death comes, and then we're forgotten. But but it's even worse. Our, 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 our ability and our attempts to sort of look away from the whole thing, it's even worse than just ignoring it because we don't just look away from the shortness and thinness of life and try to ignore it. We actually, as human beings, spend our days trying to get life to provide us with some kind of lasting significance and meaning. We think that maybe if we do family just right, or maybe if we accomplish this in our job, or maybe if this friendship works out, or if this accomplishment can happen in my life, then I'll get some significance. Friend, what, what are you banking on for significance and meaning? And at the end of life, when you're laying on your deathbed, should you have the, the privilege of having some time on a deathbed, what are you going to point to in the 70 or 80 years of your life, or 90 or whatever it is, and say, this gave it all significance? You're going to point to a job, point to friendships, to some accomplishment, some monument that you built to yourself. What, what are you going to point to on your deathbed 200 years from now? If you could look back on it, what would you point to? Say, that's the significance of my life. See, the author of Ecclesiastes wants you to see the reason he's doing all of this, the reason he's, he's just relentlessly laying out the brevity of life is that he wants you to see that that kind of striving for significance, that kind of trying to wrest ultimate meaning out of this life, to, to mine it for something that's going to be lasting and secure is useless and hopeless. And why is that? Well, because life wasn't designed to give you that kind of significance. God did not create life. He didn't give life. He didn't design life to produce that kind of significance. And so it won't no matter how hard you try. But here's, here's, here's the thing about it. Once you recognize that, once you let that reality get deep down into your soul, ironically, 
you find that you're not dropped into despair, but you're actually able to enjoy life and delight in life for what it is and what God intended it to be. I got a friend who tells a story of his, uh, he's got a, uh, a son who's not young anymore, but when his son was old, he would tell this story about this, this little boy who had a, a toy truck, toy bus, right? And the little boy would drive it around on the, on the carpet of the, the living room, and things would go fine until he would then pick the truck up and, and throw the truck across the room and, and then cry. And so, you know, as the dad delved into this behavior to try to find out why the kid was throwing the truck and then crying, it turned out that what the kid was hoping is that the bus would fly. And so when it, when it didn't, it made him very upset. And what my friend had to explain to his son is, is look, son, buses are not meant to fly. That's, that's not what they're designed for. You know, if this was an airplane that actually worked, then it would be designed to fly, but your bus is not designed to fly. So the reason you're frustrated with your bus is because you're trying to get it to do something that it was never designed to do, instead of using it for what it actually was designed to do and therefore enjoying it. The same thing is true of life. If you're trying to squeeze life and torture it to give you something that it was never designed to do and can never get you, I promise you, you're going to spend life being frustrated. But it's when you understand what life is, that it was never designed to give that kind of significance, it was never designed to give that kind of meaning, it was never designed to create a lasting monument to your fame and glory, you'll be able to enjoy it and delight in it for what it was. I mean, I mean think for example, here's, here's one example. Think about these rhythms of life that the author of Ecclesiastes talks about. The sun rises and sets and rises and sets and the wind blows and then it blows the other way. Think about, think about all that. I mean, sometimes I think that, that instead of sort of enjoying the rhythms of life, we, we find ourselves trying to escape them, right? They, they get old. Sunday morning again. You got to go to church again and again and again. It's just it's the same old thing, the same old thing, the same old thing. And I often have that thought at, at Christmas as I've gotten older. Oh, same old tree, same old cookies, and the same old cheese logs, and the same, you know, it's just, you know, and, and it, 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 I just, I think of the routine as, as drudgery, but but the better and correct way to think about those rhythms of life is not as drudgery that we're meant to escape, but as something that God intended and that's meant to give us joy. What he intended was for us to enjoy and delight in the recurring rhythms of life. So instead of thinking that gathering together with the saints on Sunday morning to do the same thing over and over again is, oh, it's just the same old thing. No, it is the same thing. Week after week after week, and this Sunday I get to gather and sing with God's people. And now this Sunday I get to gather and sing with God's people. Not to look at the first flowers of spring and think, oh, gee, it's the same old flowers, but to think, no, it's the flowers of spring again and again and again. It's not the same old cookies, it's the same cookies year after year after year. And there's something delightful in that. No, there's nothing that in this life that's going to propel you out of the rhythms of creation and into some transcendent meaning. Nothing in this life is going to do that. Jesus will do that, but this life is not going to do that. But, but when you recognize life for what it is and stop trying to force it to give you something that it was never meant to give, you can start to enjoy life for what it is. But of course, we don't do that. We try to escape, and that's point number two, much more, much more briefly. Our hopeless attempts to escape this. We see Solomon or this king, whoever he is, trying to escape the short and fleeting nature of life. And so from 12, verse 12, down through the end of chapter 2, he sets out on this journey to try to escape that fact. 
He doesn't like it that life is short and fleeting. He wants, it to find, he wants it to have significance. He wants to mine it and torture it and squeeze it to try to find some ultimate meaning. And he goes through several steps in order to, to test that and try to do it. So in verses 12 to 18, we read them earlier. His first step is to give himself to, to learning and wisdom. It's a common move among humanity, right? And there have been philosophers throughout the ages who have looked at the shortness and the fleetingness of life, the, the seeming meaningless of life, and they've sought to flee to the life of the mind. But this king, when he had done that for a while, finally came to the conclusion that even wisdom is a striving after the wind because finally death comes. You can be wise, you can learn, you can be educated, but finally, when the grave closes over you, it doesn't accomplish anything, really. It doesn't, it doesn't provide any lasting significance or meaning. In fact, he says that what he found was that having more wisdom and having more knowledge didn't lead to happiness and peace at all. Look at verse 18. Here's, here's what he finally came to to realize, for in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. That's where we get the, the whole idea that ignorance is bliss. If you don't know anything about the world, you can be happy about it. It's when you start to learn about the world that it really gets tough. That's what he realized. In the first few verses of chapter 2, because he's realized this, he abandons the life of the mind and instead pursues the life of the party. You look at those three verses, you can see him talk about laughter and pleasure and wine. But at the end of it, he says it actually in verse 1, he realized that all of that too was, was just vanity, just a striving after the wind. All the pleasure and laughter and fun in the world didn't provide him with any peace or real significance. It all just went away. In verses 4 through 11, he decides, okay, it's, it's not wisdom, it's not the life of the mind, it's not the life of the party. Maybe it's the life of productivity. That's what I'll do. I'll produce something. I'll, I'll create something. I'll build something. I'll get her done. Maybe productivity is the secret of life. So, so he made himself into the greatest king who ever ruled in Jerusalem. He built buildings and palaces and gardens and roads and all the rest of it. He accomplished something. Now, I think, if we're honest, we 21st century Americans are probably at this stage of the whole journey, right? We think that productivity is the thing that's going to give us lasting significance in life, Right? Every single one of us. It's our jobs, it's our careers, it's what we do. We as Americans are always trying to solve the equation of life for the job and for accomplishment. We don't, as Americans, try to solve the equation of life for relationships or family. We try to solve it for the job and for the career. Because we think if we accomplish something, we'll be able to look back on life and point to what we've done, what we've built, what we've amassed. But look at verse 11. Again, he says, all is vanity and striving after the wind. And if you look forward, he returns to this theme in 18 to 23. I told you it was circular, and this is one of those, one of those moments, because he'll circle back and talk about the, uh, the meaninglessness, the vanity of toil. And he asks in those verses, you probably remember it from when we read, what, what happens to all that stuff you've built? What happens to all that stuff you've amassed? Well, well who knows? I mean, uh, on the day you die, who knows what happens to it? It goes to somebody Maybe they'll preserve it, maybe they'll build on it, but maybe not. Maybe they'll destroy it. You don't know. In 12 through 17, go back, to, go back up to that paragraph. 12 through 17, he returns again in one of these circular things to, to think about wisdom. He says, okay, okay, maybe the, maybe the way to get meaning out of life and significance out of, out of this life is to live wisely and not foolishly. And he says it's not a bad thing, right? It's, it's, it's not a bad thing. There is some value in, in wisdom. The Bible often, in fact, says that 
that wisdom is important, and the author of Ecclesiastes knows that. But, but look at 14, what he finally, finally comes to the conclusion. Look, even if you live wisely instead of foolishly, the same event happens to both the wise and the foolish. And what event is that? It's death. The wise man and the foolish man will lie in the same grave. Now, you see what this guy's saying with all of this? You see what he's talking about here? He tried everything to escape the shortness and the fleetingness of life. He tried everything possible to get life to offer up to him some ultimate meaning or significance. And the thing about this guy is that he had the resources to do it. Right? I mean, I think some of us often think, oh, man, the only thing that's holding me back from getting significance out of this life is I do not have the time and money to do it. Well, take it from the author of Ecclesiastes. Even if you did have the time and money to really go after life with gusto, you wouldn't find any meaning and significance in it. This guy had it. He, he had everything he needed to make life work. He had time. He's the king, right? What does he have to do? He's, he's got money. He's got power. There are no constraints on him. Anything he wanted, he could have. He built buildings. He had possessions. People, slaves, built monuments to him. He had the best food and drink in all the kingdom. He had all the sex that he wanted with whoever he wanted. He had the best teachers in the world to give him the best wisdom that mankind had to offer. And yet, in the end, he says, none of it did the trick. Death still comes to us all. If you have money, death comes. If you don't have money, death comes. If you have possessions, death comes. If you don't, death comes. If you're famous, death comes. If you're obscure, death comes comes to us all. But then look at 24. Look at verse 24. He says there, so, so this is like the therefore. Therefore, there is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? That, that's his conclusion. That's kind of what he's going to explore through the whole rest of the book. And we will too over the next five weeks. But what does he mean there? I mean, if you read it in a certain way, it still sounds kind of despairing. It just sounds like that old, the old saw. Well, if everything is vanity and short and fleeting, then let's eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we, we die. Is, it, is that what he's saying? We might as well just eat, drink, and be merry because that's all there is in this life and there's no other significance to it. I don't think so. I don't think so. And the reason I don't think so is because he recognizes that the eating, drinking, and and being merry is coming from the hand of God as a gift. And so I think what he's saying is not let's eat, drink, and be merry because that's all there is in this life, but let's eat and drink and be merry and delight in life and its rhythms and even in its shortness because that is exactly what God intended for life. See, if you ignore the fact that you're going to die... If you try to hide from that, if you fool yourself into thinking that life is in fact going to offer up some ultimate significance to you, then you're going to spend your days striving after the wind. You're going to spend your days squeezing the rock of life and it's never going to give you a drop of significance. You're going to amass and amass and amass and everything you gather up is ultimately going to fall into the hands of another and you won't have a say in what happens to it. If you ignore the shortness and fleetingness of life, then the shortness and fleetingness of life will swallow you whole. But, but what if you approach life with a, a different mindset in a, in a different way? What if, what if you recognize and even embrace, like this author of Ecclesiastes, that life was never meant to give that kind of significance? You squeeze the rock of life and it doesn't give a drop of significance because it was never meant to give that kind of significance. What if you recognize that? 
And what if you then recognize that God has designed it in all of its unending rhythms, even in the waves of the sea that level out the sandcastles that we build, even in the very shortness of our lives, what if God has designed life not to be mastered and controlled and turned into a monument to your own greatness and significance, but simply to be enjoyed as a gift from him? Do you see how that would just change everything? I mean, what if, you, what if you looked at meals with other human beings, not as a way to network and impress and go after the gold ring, but just to enjoy good food and other people, to have fun with other human beings? What if you looked at the gathering of this church, not as a way to make a name for yourself as a minister? but as an opportunity just to enjoy being with the people of God. What if, what if you looked at the years that you have with your children? Not with the main goal of making them into something, but of just enjoying them as the good gift that they are from God. What if you looked at your classes not just as a means to the end of the diploma, to the end of the job, to the end of the career, to the end of... What exactly? But what if you looked at them as a means of just enjoying the pursuit of knowledge as a good gift from God's hand? What if, what if you thought about your job not just as something to build a name for yourself or to acquire possessions, but as an arena in which to make yourself more like Jesus and to bring glory to God? In part, I, th I think this is about embracing our createdness. I think it's about understanding that we are created to do certain things and to do them over and over and over and over again, and that many of those things that God has created us to do, that we are to delight in, and that he delights to see us delighting in, are not going to make it into eternity. And so many conversations, especially with, with young people, they, they usually grow out of it, but as young people, we want everything we do to matter. We want it to make it into eternity, Right? And if, if what I'm doing is not going to make it into eternity, if it's not of eternal significance, then it, then it doesn't matter, right? An architect wants their buildings to last into eternity. A city planner wants their city plan to make it into eternity. I was talking to a, a chef who had gotten a hold of some of that, that idea, and he said, I, I cook for eternity. I was like, well, I don't think so because I'm about to eat that. It's not, <laughs> it's not going to make it into eternity, I think it's an important thing for us as human beings to, to, to grasp. Life has, has rhythms, life is short, and life comes to an end. And yet there are things in life that God gives us to do that we are to delight in and give ourselves to and that he delights to see us delight in and give ourselves to. See, if you live life like that, if you understand life like that, it changes everything. And here's, here's the thing about this. Here's the thing about this. The funny thing is, if you embrace life in that way, those are the first steps of the faith that will lead you to embrace Jesus Christ. Look, I, I, I'm aware that, that we, haven't, we haven't talked about Jesus yet in this sermon. I'm aware of that. And that's, that's because when we're in the wisdom literature, we're, we're actually not at the gospel yet. We are at the first steps of the gospel. We're at the questions that open up minds and hearts to be able to see the beginnings of the gospel in all of its beauty. But what I'm telling you is that if you understand what life is and what it isn't, if you stop trying to find significance in it and turn your eyes to find significance in God and then just delight in the life that he's given, those are, in fact, the first steps of what will eventually turn into faith in Jesus. 
you'll start to understand that significance and meaning is not found in all of this junk, but that we live this stuff under God's sovereignty, but we're finding our ultimate significance in Jesus. You see, for Solomon or whoever wrote this, death was this absolutely unbroken dominion over human beings. One after the other died and died and died and died. What Solomon didn't know, what he hadn't seen yet, was that death's grip on humanity was going to break on the day when Jesus rose from the dead. All he saw was the unending drudgery of it. And he found a way to live with joy in it. But you and I, we can see that the cycle gets broken. And the light of eternity dawns when we're taken home to be with Christ. Let's pray.